0: They can measure the energy that leaves from your heart, that your heartbeat creates eight to 10 feet outside of your body. So if you are in a 12 by 12 room with four other people, all that stuff is meshed up together. We are all adding to other everybody else's energetic soup. So we do have to be careful around what kind of energy is in our space and if somebody is such a different energy that it just doesn't jive that's okay but they need to get out of your room
1: this can't be it there has to be more wait am i crazy no if you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality then you're in the right place Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host Jerome, and I've got Kate Donovan in with me today. Now, there's something about the Northeast. There's something about traveling. I don't know, Kate. Where are you?
0: I am in Jersey now, but I've lived all over the damn place.
1: Okay, where where where's all over the place? I'm. I grew to-
0: up south of Boston, about an hour south of Boston. I did my master's degree in San Diego. I met my husband in Buenos Aires. I lived in Warsaw, Poland for six years, and then Prague, Czech Republic for the next six years. And now, of all the places to land in the earth after moving all over the world, I landed in Jersey.
1: What in the world? So exciting. So, and it's such an adventurous life and a number of different careers along the way, but you've gotten into this really cool space where... I feel like you don't work every day.
0: (laughs) I don't work every day. That's an accurate assessment. And that was a really clear plan of mine. I believe in time freedom. It's one of my biggest values. I spent most of my life... I mean, when I turned 14, my mother was like, literally on my birthday, it's time to go get a work permit. So we marched over to the office to get a work permit. And I was working and going to school ever since. So I worked seven days a week for, you know, long enough. I'm done with that.
1: Over it.
0: Over it. And I think that I will take a minute to recognize the fact that I can actually make that choice. And I know not, not everyone can. But because I can make that choice, I feel like it is my responsibility to do so. It's not my my, adding extra struggle to my life does not lessen other people's suffering ever, ever,
1: ever. So, all right. There's a frying pan behind you. There's something that says fried. Well, fried the burnout podcast. I feel like we're we're easing our way into this. So when did the podcast start? How do you not work every day? Help help me on this journey because this is just... People are like, what in the world is going on? She's lived all over the place. She doesn't work every day. Who is this chick?
0: Who is this girl? So, Fried the Burnout podcast is three years old. It started in July 2019 and has been such an amazing addition to my life. I do not make money directly from the podcast, although like, if somebody wants to sponsor it, I'm cool with that. But... I do use it for lead generation. All of my coaching clients, most of my coaching clients come from the podcast and a lot of speaking engagements, which is the majority of my income are speaking engagements. Those also come from the podcast. I have had companies start burnout recovery processes in their offices using the podcast episodes, which is wild, and then call me and say, listen, we've gotten through these you know top five episodes for helping people. And now we're a little bit stuck. Could you come in and help us? And then I get to go in and do a consult or do a workshop or whatever it is they happen to need. So when you're doing work like that, you can't necessarily work every day because if I have to be in Colorado on Monday, the chances are that Monday evening, I'm not going to be back in New York.
1: Because why would you... Do that. That's just not reasonable.
0: It's not reasonable, right? So a lot of times my days off will be travel days, but also I almost like refuse to work five days a week. When I look at my calendar in the beginning of the week, I have to see white space on it, clear space, places where there are no appointments. I have this sort of rule that if somebody calls me on a Monday and says, hey, can we grab lunch this week? I have to have at least one slot where I could say, yeah, I can do it on whatever day. If I can't have lunch with anybody during the week because I don't have enough time in my calendar, my
1: calendar is too full. So did you suffer from burnout?
0: Uh-huh. This is the whole story, right? I While I was in Warsaw and Prague, I was a practicing acupuncturist. I did it for another two years when I got back to the States. So I have 14 years of being an
1: acupuncturist. Wait, you you were poking needles in people's faces? I was. Oh boy.
0: I was. And they paid me for it and they liked me. All those things are true at the same time. So acupuncture is something that I absolutely adore. I know how powerful it is. I'm really lucky to be a part of that community and a part of that medicine. And the job was overwhelming for me because of we're just going to go right into it. I'm, I'm like diving off the deep end right now. Are you ready? You asked me before if I was ready, but I'm wondering if you're ready.
1: You wouldn't be here if I wasn't ready.
0: Okay, here we go. Because of issues of self-worth and a tendency to self-neglect and a belief that unless I was useful to other people, I was useless and worthless, I gave to my patients way more than they wanted and way more than I actually had. And it burned me out. So people would come in, Say elbow pain, whatever, it doesn't matter. And they would be 96% better. And I would be like, it's not good enough. And they'd be like, I'm actually cool with this. This is fine. I can play tennis. Like, I don't, this is awesome. I'm really happy. If it starts bothering me again, I'll come back. And I'm like, no, I want to fix it now. I want to fix it 100% and I want to fix it forever. And they're like, it's probably not reasonable because I play tennis and I sit down the rest of the day and I eat like shit, but you know, whatever. And I'm like, but it needs to be perfect. Right. So I wanted more for people than they wanted for themselves. So I was fighting a battle that I was never going to be able to win. That's exhausting.
1: Wow. And so everybody out there is feeling convicted right now (laughs) because they all want more for the people around them than they want for themselves. And they're like, Wait, I'm not the only one, and I'm not special because this is the thing that makes me special, and this is the thing that makes me different from everybody else in the world. And yeah. you're like, no, been down the road, been down the, the road,
0: and I still want big things for people. The difference now is, I ask them what they want, and I respect their answers.
1: Ooh, so you don't spend time trying to grow their expectations or desires.
0: If I can inspire them to be grown, and it's exciting for them cool but being content is like high like highly underrated there's a lot of people that could just be content if we weren't shoving it down their throats all the time then it needed to be bigger more better faster harder better faster stronger you know
1: this is really interesting and So if so somebody's
0: content i just let them be
1: yeah i, I Gary Vee talks about it a lot, right? It's just, uh, hey, Mazel tov. if you're living the life you want to live, great. I'm not here to tell you to do something else. No. But what about the people who want more? They're asking those questions like, is this it? And what was it all for? What do you do with those folks?
0: Depends on what they're looking for. So if they the people that I work with most frequently are burnt out, right? So they got to a place, they created a life that they thought was the life they wanted. They A lot of people that I work with checked off all the boxes, right? They, they did all the things on the list. And then they looked down and they said, I'm supposed to be happy now. It's not working. Why isn't it working? And to me, in those moments, this is when we start to dig into the actual real stuff, okay, that's what society told you was going to work. That's what you wrote down on a piece of paper one day because you saw somebody else that had it and you assumed that it was better. So you went for it. And then you got there and you realized, eh, like when I started speaking, I was like, this is a great gig. You get big amounts of money for short amounts of time. Amen. And you know something? There's a lot I didn't know. Every time I've learned something new and entered a new space that i assumed from the outside was easier and better than whatever thing i was doing what i learned was there's all sorts of stuff in the background that i don't know about just yet and it's just as challenging as anything else the my husband and i talk about this a lot because we've lived all, all over the place right like my husband lived in argentina for a year i was only there for a few months He's Polish. He speaks fluent Spanish, fluent Czech, a little bit of Portuguese, been everywhere, right? So we've, we've been all over. We've lived lots of places. And when you're deciding where you want to live and what you want to do, as much as deciding what you want out of it, the other thing you have to decide is what you're willing to tolerate because you're going to have to tolerate something. So which things are going to bother you the least?
1: Huh. I don't think most people know what they can tolerate. Like I, I think no. people know what they don't want, right? But as far as this can exist in my life and I yeah. can deal with it, yeah. because it tends to grow, right? It's okay in the beginning and then it just gets bigger and bigger and then that's all they start to focus on when all this other really cool stuff is happening.
0: Yeah, well, and sometimes it makes you lose, like you're saying, it makes you lose track of the cool stuff that's happening. So when that's happening, the question is, can you actually tolerate that thing? And Or did your, did your, Tolerance change. Like, it's okay for your tolerance to change and have to shift some things in your environment. There's so much effort placed on the internal world in the coaching world where, like, if you just fix enough of your insides, like the rest will just work. And you know what? Sometimes the environment just is not it, no matter what you do. You can't fix it. It's not, it just doesn't work for you. Like you can't, if you're in an abusive relationship, you're not going to fix it by working on yourself. If you're in an environment that doesn't suit you, you're not going to fix it by working on yourself. You've got to get yourself out of there. So I think if you get to a point where something that used to be tolerable isn't tolerable anymore, that's okay. You can look inside and say, are there things I can adjust here? But if you find out that there's not, then you've got to bounce.
1: But that would be uncomfortable. Yeah. No kidding. Welcome to life. (laughs) So matter of fact, how do you learn how to stick needles in people's faces?
0: Uh, So acupuncture is a four-year master's degree in the United States. So I did a four-year master's program. That's the short answer.
1: Did you get any other training?
0: Yeah. So the first two years of schooling I did as a pre-med student, and then I did four years of Chinese medicine. And Chinese medicine is acupuncture, qigong, lifestyle, herbs, Etc. So all of those things get smashed into sort of like the overarching Chinese medicine bundle.
1: Wow. Did you ever go to China?
0: I've been to China multiple times. Probably every few years, I went for a couple of months.
1: Did they do acupuncture while you were there? On me? No. Like, did you see them do it? Yeah, like, is this the same acupuncture?
0: It's actually a little bit different. A lot of times in the West, we use needles that are a little bit thinner. So acupuncture needles are about the thickness of a strand of hair. They're, they're pretty thin. So in one hypodermic needle that you would use to draw blood, for instance, you can fit like between 18 to 35 acupuncture needles in the tip of it. They're really, really thin. In China, they tend to use slightly thicker ones. Not thick, just slightly thicker. In the States, we also use something called guide tubes. So there's little plastic... Things that we use outside of the needle, and it sort of desensitizes your skin, so you don't feel the needle going in, which is really useful. In China, they don't care if you feel the needle going in for the most part, so they just go for it. Um, I've I worked in a hospital in China when I first graduated school for a couple of months, and there was we were working. One of our patients was a 33 year old stroke patient and he had had a really severe brain hemorrhage that part of his skull had been removed um, and they had to do surgery and he was really not functioning when we came in. And the acupuncturist there was doing three needles at a time into one point in order to get the nerves working again. And within 30 days, I helped that man walk down the hallway. He needed to lean on us for strength. I'm not saying he was going for a run tomorrow, but he was picking up his legs by himself within 30 days. That's not possible in Western medicine. We don't we don't view that as even a possibility. So being in China, um, yeah, they do it a little different. They can be a little more intense, but also they get results that we can't always get because people are not willing to come every single day and live through it to get the progress. That they can get. And it's it's not it's cost prohibitive in the States too for people to do it that way. But you know, I've seen people do uh, surgery like dental surgery only using acupuncture anesthesia, like doing a nerve block with acupuncture. So cool.
1: Wait, and they couldn't fill it? Like couldn't that's the it. thing.
0: Yep. There's an there's a documentary that shows open heart surgery being done with acupuncture
1: anesthesia. All I can think is what happens if somebody bumps the needle?
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're real careful. But yeah, no, This the dental procedures, um, I worked in a homeless shelter while I was still in school as an intern. And we provided medical care for the homeless community. And we did it side by side with the dental school that was nearby. And a lot of people couldn't have any type of narcotics for a treatment because they were addicts at history, etc. And so we would come in and perform dental anesthesia so that they could have procedures done.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. How do they test and know if it's like the really same way blocked? they do
0: after you get a shot? Can you feel this? Or do you feel numb? Same thing.
1: That Mind blowing, right? I know. Yeah. I, I, I didn't even realize you could do the blocks, right? I've yeah. had anesthesia done or, I've had anesthesia done, but I've had (laughs) um, acupuncture as well, but I never put two and two together. That is just... It's not
0: commonly done here. It's just, it is a possibility and it's cool to know that.
1: So, I mean, you've got all this unconventional stuff put into this big old pot of gumbo mixed up. (laughs) And I mean, you're you're taking it from all the different countries and... Mm -hmm. Like, was that always a thing? Cause I think most people would be terrified to do some of the stuff you've done, like work with homeless people as a yeah. lady. And I don't even know how tall you are, but I mean, Five, six. you're not a big, yeah, you're not a big person. Like, and I was 40
0: like, pounds lighter when I was doing it. So I was tiny back then. <laughs> no, that doesn't, that didn't scare me at all at the time. I grew up, I grew up in a small city in Massachusetts that used to be fairly well known for a heroin problem. So, my parents at one point of my life owned a small laundromat and it was across the street from a methadone clinic. So these were not worlds that were really foreign to me. I didn't feel uncomfortable with homeless people. I don't feel uncomfortable in big cities. I don't feel uncomfortable walking down the street by myself at night. That's that I didn't grow up with um, with a lack of street knowledge. So I feel fairly confident and safe within myself, kind of no matter where I am. That was a big part of me being able to travel Is that I I'm just don't feel very afraid. And I have eyes in the back of my head because I grew up in a place where you you had to, you had to pay attention. So I do feel pretty safe in that regard. But I did do a business, online business training years ago. And the coach asked us to reach out to 25 people that we do and ask them to tell us the first three words that they think of when they think of us. So I had to call somebody and say, hey, when you think of me, what are the first three words that pop into your head? And just see what they said and start writing down what everybody said. And see if there are any patterns when you get through. 25 people is a lot of people, so you're bound to get some things that repeat. In about 35% of all of the answers, so almost every single person said the same type of word. It was either bold, brave, courageous, this category of like assumed fearlessness. And I read it and I was baffled because while I feel pretty safe walking around on the street, all of these big things that I've done, I've been afraid of the whole time. I've just done them anyway. But it's not that I didn't feel fear. It's not like, so I, I didn't feel bold when I felt them. I felt fear. And then I thought, but that's what braveness and boldness and courage is. It's feeling afraid and still acting. And that changed my whole percepti- my whole perception of my own being. And this was... 2017, 2016, 2017. This was not that long ago. I was in my 30s already. And I was like, oh my God, I am brave. Wow. I didn't know.
1: So, did somebody help you develop that? Like, who? Somebody had to help usher you through some of these experiences. Like,
0: my father, who was or is, this is a f- funny man, used to do things like, I grew up where I grew up in Massachusetts is not too far from the beaches. And so we would go to the beach in the summer sometimes and we would go out to a beach and swim out to a rock and climb up the rock. And then he would jump off the back of the rock and swim back and be like, you don't have any other way to get back. So you have to jump. This is your only choice. You'll figure it. I trust you to figure it out. And he would swim away. And I would have to jump and chase him because I was like, "Ah, I'm on this rock in the ocean by myself." <laughs> so yeah, w- when I first started driving, I was still had my learner's permit. I didn't even have my license yet. My father was uh, owned a used car lot, so I was always given whatever like was the shittiest car that was available at the time. You know, which was fine by me. I had free cars. Like I'm not I'm not complaining. They just didn't always last very long because <laughs> they were falling apart. But one day he comes home and he says, we have to go up to Boston to get your sister. Boston is an hour's drive and Boston traffic is nuts. He pulled into the driveway in an El Camino. Do you know what an El Camino is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for people who don't know, it's a A car. it's It's a car truck. It's the height of a car. And it only has the the front seat, but then it has a truck bed going out behind it. It was real popular in, you know, the 70s, 80s. And so he brings home this El Camino that drives like a damn boat. And he, and it's pouring outside. And he says, you've got to go to Boston and get your sister. He sits in the passenger seat and just like makes me go. So, yeah, I would say my my dad definitely encouraged me to or forced me, I'm encouraged as a real gentle word, forced me to face things head on.
1: In the moment, did you appreciate what was happening?
0: By the time I was driving, that situation I thought was hysterical because it's so him. Like at some point, you're just like, okay, dude. Like it got to the point where when I was little, it bothered me a lot. But it did get to the point where I knew it was coming and I started to wait for the challenge. So I would wait, like I, we would be somewhere and I'd be like, oh, this is there's an opportunity here. Yeah, I'd be looking around and being like, what is he going to make me do here? And like, I'd try and guess what like, what the challenge was going to be. And so I started looking for the challenges.
1: And even when you weren't in his care, you started looking for challenges. Yes. What a great gift.
0: Yeah. He also gave me a sense of humor, which is helpful.
1: So when you left ac- acupuncture behind,
0: mm-hmm.
1: did you have a clear plan on what was next?
0: Yeah. So when I moved back to the States, this is really messed up, but when I did my degree, I did I had two years of undergrad and then I went straight to a master's degree. So I didn't get a bachelor's degree along the way. It's just six years of school, master's degree done. I'm um, we were moving to New Jersey because of my husband's job. And New Jersey is the only state in the United States that I cannot practice acupuncture in because they require a bachelor's degree. <laughs> so it's so backwards. Even and they say on the app, says on the application, we know you have a master's degree, but if you don't have a bachelor's like we don't want to hear it, don't bother applying. Like there's no exceptions, we're not going to talk about it. It's just just don't bother. So I knew before we got back here that there was going to have to be some shift. And I had already I had recovered from burnout. People had started hiring me for coaching. Things had already started happening. So I kind of knew that there was like a, a new space opening up for me. And I just took advantage of it. I said, okay, well, if, if I'm going to do this, then I can do this. I had been speaking for years in Europe anyway. I just wasn't really a big part of my business. I said, I'm just going to double down. So by the time I closed my acupuncture office, I was already making enough in this other space to feel safe.
1: Oh, so you had a soft landing. I think a lot of people who are making that step They don't have a soft land and they're, they are trying to figure it out as they're going along and that keeps them in the space that they're in for longer than they probably would love to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I'm not going to say that I was making the kind of money that makes me feel like I'm making enough necessarily, but it was enough to cover my basics.
1: Okay. And then when did you realize like, there's really something here I got to keep going. I call this a red pill moment.
0: I started between the podcast and showing up at events, I started getting messages from people that said, I never thought about these things this way before. You literally just changed my life. This one sentence really st- like stuck out. And I started hearing something really similar pretty often. Like This one thing that you said really hit me. And I started realizing that instead of being in a one-to-one situation where I'm the I'm the doctor, somebody's the patient. I can talk to 300 people at a time. And those 300 people, each of them can take one sentence that I said, and it can transform things for them. That's powerful. So for me, it was people's feedback. That red pill was people's feedback saying, "This is." somebody said to me one day, I do these workshops every week. This is the most powerful thing I've heard in years. And it stopped me in my tracks because I was like, this is just basic information. It's not basic information, not for everybody. It's basic information for me.
1: So it's almost as if you inspire them to more, as we were talking about earlier, because they became aware of what was possible, which then also connects you with your dad, right? Because now you're challenging them in ways that they haven't been challenged and they got you trust them to figure it out. I trust
0: them to figure it out. Or I trust them to figure it out or ask for help if they need it.
1: So, I mean... Based on what the stories you've told me, everything in your life has gone perfect, right? So there's been no challenges on the none journey since you all. left. None at
0: all. Yeah, none. Well, <laughs> the
1: course.
0: I mean, no. My My father, before he was this challenger, was a drug addict and an alcoholic. So he got sober when I was between six and seven. I started working when I was 14. I worked my way through everything. I bartended and all of that. I met someone who was a foreigner when I was abroad. So I have an international marriage, which is been, it's really complicated to navigate at certain times. When I moved back to the States, I ruptured my Achilles and spent four months in bed. You know, there's been some okay. stuff along the way.
1: Normal stuff.
0: Just right, so. life, you know, just everybody's got life. Everybody's got stories.
1: A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, a.k.a. the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMeyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. So I don't think I've ever dove into that, but you brought it up. So like what type of challenges come with being in an international marriage?
0: Being in an international marriage, you have to work toward understanding the other person's culture. Because you might make assumptions about their behaviors that are incorrect So the way that Polish people interact with each other, I often think is rude because it's not the way that I would interact with people, but it's not rude for them because that's their standard. Like that's just normal. If I was sitting at the table and I said, give me the milk, my parents would look at me and be like, are you kidding? Like, could you pass the milk, please? Very different. But in Polish, you don't Say it that way. You just say "give me the milk," and people just do it, and it's not nobody takes offense to it. It's very, it's it's not a problem. So there can be a lot of really small things like that that you don't realize that the person is not like trying to hurt you or not. The person is not being rude. They're just doing things according to what the their norms are. And it wasn't until I learned how to speak Polish fluently and lived there for a significant portion of time that I was able to let go of some of the behaviors that I was like, "Well, that's not right." But it's not right according to Americans, which doesn't make it wrong. Like, it's just different.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if that's... Specific to international marriages, I think people have a model of what should happen in the home, and we, anytime do. you merge two of those, it becomes it can become a mess.
0: Yeah, they do, and it, it just I think the level of acceptance is easier even in an international relationship if you take the time to learn about the culture because you can let go of things a lot easier when you're from the same culture. It's a lot harder to let go. That's the bigger challenge there. But here, you can let go as long as you know what's going on you know like i was like ah things are so like personal like when you say in polish when you say that your son got sick you say my son got sick on me like it happened to you you know it's like everything's and i'm like god relax the world is not out to get you but that's just the language structure (laughs) you know so silly things like that but i I, you're right i mean that happens in every relationship
1: so all right you're out here in the wild now i mean i think before you left, it might have been the wild, but here in the wilderness, right? Yeah. What's been your worst fear in the
0: process? My biggest fear in the process of speaking?
1: Yeah, speaking or the podcast or coaching.
0: I think in in speaking and coaching and book writing, all all three of those things, my biggest fear is being judged on sort of like a sentence out of context or being held to an opinion that I've grown from or being, you know, so just... Really, putting when I released the book, I was petrified of what people were going to say about me, think about me, et cetera, because no matter who you are, no matter who you are, there's gonna be people that don't like you just because a lot of other people do, and there's gonna be people that don't like you because they just don't like you too that, that you know, but there's gonna be people that are like, "Oh, everybody loves her, I think she's shit, you know, like just to to be contrary, some people are just like that, and putting myself out there for that level of scrutiny and judgment. I think is still the the hardest part. I'm standing on front of a stage. I'm talking to a thousand people. You know, at least 40 of them are not going to agree with me, at least on a good day.
1: How'd you get over it? Why? I'm not I mean, over it. That could it. be a cage.
0: I'm not over it.
1: You're taking action though. You're I am. You're not letting it keep you from doing stuff.
0: Well, did you hear about my challenges before? I just face them. You just do it. Because at some point, I mean, I just got some feedback from a workshop that I was not sensitive enough about something. And I was like, okay, this is my fear. This is the thing. I didn't include somebody. I missed something. I didn't create enough space for something. People didn't feel safe enough with me. And it took me a week to write back. She didn't even write the email to me. She wrote it to a group of people and said, this is some of the feedback. And it took me a week to respond. And I responded. And there's nothing else I can do. I spent the week sort of digging into the feedback a little bit and saying, all right, well, what can I learn that will help me In the future, in different places, I was. I read. I read a book. I listened to a few podcasts. It sort of like, you know, enhance to myself, and
1: that is that.
0: Yeah, I mean, what? There's nothing else I can do. It already happened, but it's scary to put yourself out there for judgment.
1: Yeah, and I think it hurts or impacts confidence, right? As well, when you're going through.
0: Yeah, hundred percent.
1: So, was there ever a, a rock bottom or a rock top for you?
0: The rock top was when I burnt out. I was at the very top of my acupuncture career. I was out earning my husband in his own country as an entrepreneur when he was working a corporate job. It was it was like this crazy success story. Which, of course, I was making money in what my husband affectionately calls Polish potatoes. So, if the the monetary numbers were not that much when you put them into dollars, but in within the country, I was very successful. And I was absolutely miserable, so that was a rock top that was the beginning of my burnout, and that led to a lot of change and and a lot of goodness for me at the end but it was it was tough. The rock bottom the worst part of this process so far was actually moving back to the states so coming back to the states, we expected to sort of hit the ground running. My husband got a decent has a good job and it was a decent job at the time but The money was not commensurate to what we were accustomed to in Europe. So there were some adjustments that needed to be made. And I've always made my my money on top of that. And within six weeks of getting here, I ruptured my Achilles. I couldn't stand. I didn't have a speaking career yet. I didn't have the podcast yet. And I couldn't do acupuncture because I couldn't stand. And in order to do acupuncture, I had to go into New York City because I can't practice in New Jersey. So I can't get on the train. I can't walk from the train to where I have to go. I don't have anywhere to practice out of because I haven't even gotten it set up yet. What am I supposed to do? And that time nearly crushed me. And, And moving is really stressful, especially international moving. And my husband was going through his own shit. And he's always been extremely generous, but we were going through this and he was like, you really need to get on it. Like, I can't be responsible for you. Like I didn't, I never married you to like have a trophy wife who doesn't work. And I was like, dude, I've owned three businesses in two foreign countries because your job moved. Like I'm good at this. I I just physically am like physically incapable, but he was not in his right mind. You know, he was, he was, he was losing it. The responsibility was heavy. I was sick. Like he was just going through his own stuff. And this was, I s- sat there and I thought, well, what if I'm never successful in this country? Like, what if I could only make it because I was like the special American?
1: Usher syndrome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it took me a year, a year at least.
1: So you get the first gig. Yeah. Tell me about it.
0: The first gig that made any significant kind of money was th- through networking, through connections, as as it tends to be. And it was somebody that I had met in the past. And they said, well, listen will pay I know that will pay you 4500 so charge us 4500 and I was like $4500 to speak that is wild that was before I realized that I was going to spend 45 hours prepping for it <laughs> but, <laughs> so again these some of the secrets behind the wheels of like a speaking career first of all you sometimes you don't get paid for 90 days second of all you do a lot more prep than you assume you're going to do third of all there's other resources that you need to prep like handouts and that you know there's so there's all this extra stuff. Stuff, but I didn't know that at the time. And I showed up and I did it and I crushed it. Like I killed it. It was so great. And within a couple of weeks, someone from that group had spoken to someone from another group and said, Hey, listen, you should have this girl come in. She's great and she's still not very well known. So you can get her for cheap. So they were like, we'll pay you $4,500. And I was like, amazing. <laughs> and, they were, and then they said, listen, we actually want to hire you to do two or three things. And we want to get you because we think you're going to be bigger. And we want to get you now while we can still afford you. So can we set some things up? We Can we sign a contract for three or four now so we can get you kind of? And I was like, sure. Okay. And then from there it just starts rolling because people start to get to know you a little bit and then you get referred and then somebody says something about you and then here we are.
1: And so did your did you have like a speaking coach? Like how'd you learn this game? Like forty five hours of prep and you might have been exaggerating, but like how'd you how'd you know you were ready? Because I think most people are looking for permission.
0: Yeah. So if you are the person, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, that is bold, but you are also the person who always sat in a classroom looking at the teacher or sat in a conference looking at the person on stage and thought to yourself, I would have said that better. I think people are missing the point because I would have said that differently if she just said it like this. If you are always imagining yourself in the front of the room, go to the front of the room. I think that's it. I, I have very rarely watched somebody be a speaker and thought "Mm, they're better than me at that doesn't mean that they're not better than me because be actually be becoming a speaker my speaking has improved majorly over the past two years just from practice but I always pictured myself being able to do it well I, I used to sit in elementary school and watch the teachers and be like if she explained that different more people would understand so I've always pictured myself in that place and so if, if somebody's listening and they've always pictured themselves in that place, the only way to know if you're good in that place is to stand there and try it. And it turns out I have a natural talent for it. Cool. I thought that was going to be enough. But if I actually wanted to make six figures speaking and, and pay my bills and live a good life, then I had to improve. This is when I joined the National Speakers Association. I go to monthly meetings. We do lessons. There's workshops. There's all sorts of things that I have leaned on over the past year to improve my skills as I go so that I can continuously charge more money and get bigger clients, etc.
1: But there was something there, right? Because they said you were good. You got referred. I did. We're trying to catch the rising star before it gets yeah. too costly. Yeah. What makes a compelling speech?
0: I think there's a couple of really important aspects. I think one of them is your ability to hold space for an audience. The reminder that you're not there for yourself, you're there for them. This was fairly easy for me because of being an adult child of an alcoholic. I'm accustomed to being in tune with my environment, in tune with people's emotions, in tune with subtle shifts in energy in a room. Adult children of alcoholics happen to have that skill we'll call it a skill it's also a coping mechanism but you know so that was pretty easy for me in addition to that i had bartended wait and waitress for years and then i was an acupuncturist where i was speaking with people one on one i did 30000 treatments in 15 years that's a lot of conversations with people so i was it's easy for me to create an energy in a room that says hey we're all here together let's explore something. So I think being able to hold energy for people is is really important and being able to notice when it shifts is really important. And being able to control that shift is the most important, but that requires knowing when to pause, knowing when to give people a beat, knowing when to speed through something really quickly because you need somebody to catch up, knowing when to make people laugh, knowing when to really not, right? So controlling the energy from the stage, I think is is a really big skill. And I think that this is what separates the truly great speakers from people that just get on stage. That's number one. Number two is your ability to interpret situations and and lessons in a way that reaches people. So this is about storytelling abilities and this is about not just regurgitating other people's information, about having your own original ideas. Okay, And let's be honest, there's not a lot of original ideas out there anymore. Everything's already been like thought of and said in some way, shape or form. So I'm not saying that I'm out here like creating shit that nobody's ever said. Like that, that's that's just not true. But I might be saying it in a way that you haven't heard it before. And if I can do that, then I will reach more people. So if you're just regurgitating, if if you are setting up a PowerPoint for a speech and four of your slides are quotes by other people who are still living, that's not your speech. That's other people's work. Ouch. That's not your speech. Have your own thoughts about it. You can refer to those people, sure, but you are trying to bolster your own image by leaning on people that have said things better than you think you can say them. Say it better. Find your own way. You have to be somewhat original to be a good speaker. So I think those two things are are really critical in that space. And today like so for the for the energy of this podcast, your energy is like really smooth and steady and down here. If I was on a podcast with my friend Julie, I'd be talking like this, matching. right? But I'm matching you here because this is the energy of your space. I don't create the energy in this space, you create the energy in this space. My job is to be here with you.
1: You know, it's interesting that you said that because I think there's a lot of people who go into the space and they want to set the mood, mm-hmm. energy, temperature mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be- to whatever makes them comfortable. Yeah. And it becomes off-putting for the people who are already in the space. Yes. But
0: you own this space. I don't.
1: I just connect the dots on something that, because I've, I've dealt, I've, I've spent time with people who struggle with, why don't people enjoy when I am in their space? mm And it's because they come into the space and disrupt it, and that's that's the fastest way to get people uncomfortable and disinterested.
0: And it's okay to know that not everybody's your flavor. So you said before, like this is all your gumbo. Like if you're serving gumbo and I really prefer pad Thai, then it might just not work. Like we might just not like each other. It's not uh, adjusting as much as I adjust for other people isn't always the healthiest choice either because then you're leaving parts of yourself behind. Now, if you've noticed over, I've sprinkled in some faster speech and I've thrown in a little bit of funny things because I need those little extra spices for myself, but that doesn't mean that I'm changing the base of your gumbo. That's already made, right? So we talk about this in an an emotional aspect really frequently with my clients, what kind of energy are you bringing into the energetic soup of your family, of your workplace, of your clients? What flavors are you adding? Do they meld? Are they bitter? Yeah. What's going on? Right. So, paying attention to, I think there's so much, so much involvement in the United States, especially about being an individual person. So, we're all like, I can control my own energy. Listen, they can measure the energy that leaves from your heart that your heartbeat creates eight to 10 feet outside of your body. So if you are in a 12 by 12 room with four other people, all that stuff is meshed up together. We are all adding to other everybody else's energetic soup, whether we like it or not. You could be sitting in the four corners of that room and your shit would still be touching. So we do have to be careful around what kind of energy is in our space and if somebody is such a different energy that it just doesn't jive that's okay but they need to get out of your room
1: gotta protect yourself
0: you have to protect yourself it's not good for them either to be in well, a space they where they know, don't feel liked just, yeah they know
1: well i'm thinking about the folks who are dominant right folks yeah. who, uh, there's some people who you are used to being alpha and they, yeah things just kind of bend to them and adjust to them and They don't understand kind of group dynamics. It's just, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to force my way. And I I don't think that in today's world that that works very well. Long term. I agree with you. The authority is temporary. I think the majority of folks who are working in organizations as clients or partners or employees they're there as volunteers, right? And they can choose to volunteer someone else. They're paid volunteers, but yeah. they can go volunteer somewhere else. And yeah, So I think you have to treat people. So, all right, <laughs> last two questions. Okay. What dream are you most focused on catching now?
0: The dream that I'm most focused on catching now is having the speaking be so consistent that I know a few months in advance more or less what's happening So right now I'm at a comfortable place with speaking. I'm making enough money to make it okay, but I never know if it's still going to be there in three months time. So I know people that have been in the business a little bit longer than me tend to have four to six months planned out. They can more or less predict their income. Of course, things change, things get canceled, things, whatever, but more or less predict their income and they have that sort of buffer of four to six months I would that's the space that I'm going to next business wise is to have that that enough consistency to have that buffer and feel a little safer for the long
1: term. Runway is what I call that.
0: Yes, that's a perfect word for it. Yes, runway. That's what I'm building out now.
1: The other one is is, TEDx. Ooh, fancy.
0: I keep applying. I haven't gotten any yet, but if I do, I'll let you know.
1: Okay. I applied last year. I didn't make it either. So uh,
0: I've applied weird. like eight times.
1: <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, no, I'm not going to go final. I'm going to say this. Kate, you're absolutely a dream catcher. This has oh, been you. a phenomenal episode. Just thinking about your journey across the globe, your sense of adventure that was inspired by your dad. You, you've given me new inspiration for my, my little ones, right? And making sure that they're challenged and... I might not make them jump off a rock, but I'm certainly <laughs> going to make them do some things that are uncomfortable so that they can expand their horizons and have more understanding of their capability and their capacity. Mm. Because mm. I don't think we actually understand what that is until we push up against it. Yeah. And with so, kids,
0: especially, we, re- we protect them too much.
1: Yeah. They're adaptable. And yeah. They're, they're you're, they're made for survival, they especially are. when they give them to us and they <laughs> we don't get an instruction manual. We don't know what we're doing, right? So yeah. <laughs> There's so much there. And so now I move to the final question. So when I ask everybody, what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode?
0: I think the most important thing that came up today for me is a reminder for myself that I'll take away today is that people that look bold and brave and courageous they're scared too. They're just scared and doing it anyway. And I don't think that's any special thing. You, Everybody can do that. So if some things, if you're holding yourself back because of some sort of fear, my mother used to make me do this exercise called, what are the consequences? And she'd make me write out consequences like A, consequence B, consequence C, and as many as I could think of. And she'd look at me and say, okay, well, will you be able to handle it? No matter which one of these come up, so I guess my mom gave me some of that courage too, and I didn't even realize it this is but this is one of my favorite lessons to do with people. like look, just look at the thing, look at the thing that you are wanting to do and that you are so afraid of and write that shit down. And can you handle it if it happens? If you can't, it's time to adjust it. But if you can, then you've got nothing left to wait for. Go for it, jump, spread your wings, catch that dream
1: to the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon.
0: Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time,
1: remember that your dreams should be real.